This week on Forward, author of The New Megatrends, Seeing Clearly in the Age of Disruption, trend spotter extraordinaire Marion Salzman joins us on Forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to Ford, one of the most forward-thinking humans on the planet, I, I would say, the author of The New Megatrend, Seeing Clearly in the Age of Disruption, Marion Salzman. Marion, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So just to let everyone know, I've known Marion for a decade plus. Uh, she helped launch Venture for America back in 2011. We both went to Brown University. Um, and Marion's one of those people that made me feel more hip and creative uh, having gone to Brown. Uh, she coined the term metrosexual, which impacted us all, <laughs> I, I would say, either aspirationally or otherwise. Um, but she was, was one of the original trend spotters, uh, paid handsomely to do it, uh, has run some of the biggest PR firms and efforts uh, in the world, has hopscotched, globetrotted between here and um, the Netherlands and London and Asia and all parts. You can probably see in the fact that she looks like she, uh, you know, just got off a plane. No offense, Mary. <laughs> I did, I did, so it's okay. So it's fine to tell someone they look tired when they are. It's perfectly cool. Plus you and I are old friends, so I, I do. Exactly. You, know, you wouldn't think much of it. Um, so, uh, congrats on the, this book. What and like people, I think, are going to be fascinated just because everyone wants to know what's coming next. And your book is largely about uh, 2038, which I dare say is a fine year to home in on. Um, but uh, I suppose let's start with a little bit of your origin story. How the heck does one become a futurist, trend spotter, fortune teller? Yeah, let's leave the fortune teller aside because if I was really a good fortune teller, I'd be so independently wealthy. I wouldn't be telling anyone else's fortunes. I'd be figuring out the stock market or the crypto pages for myself. But in terms of being a good trend spotter, I think you start off like being a good nerd. Um, and why do I say that? Because oftentimes uh, you're looking for the aberrations buried in the quantitative data. What is it that 30% of the people are doing that it's the 30% of the people that are the next trajectory, not the 30% of the people that are lagging behind. And if you think about metrosexual, just as a good example, I had seen a statistic in, in 2002 that men felt they no longer were guaranteed to be CEO of the bedroom or the boardroom. The only room they felt was up for grabs in the house was the kitchen. Um, there was another phrase we'd thrown out there was that, um, guys felt that women wanted them to be just gay enough. Now look, an overwhelming majority of men did not agree with any of those things, but a very important 30 to 35% did. So you look for that data point that starts to help you build a qualitative story. And then you're looking for patterns, you're looking for information that's out there. You're calling the news. In today's world, you're calling people's podcasts, you're calling their writings, you're calling their blogs. Um, you're looking at political reporting. I think I spend more time looking at political reporting today than I ever did. 
it's why one of the things that actually embarrasses me about the book coming out is I did a very good job in my humble opinion. And I suppose I can quantify that I did a good job on dealing with the future crisis that is coming between Taiwan and China. And proof of that is I have a Chinese uh, book publisher who's asked me to remove a chapter. And I have a Taiwanese book publisher who's asked me to remove a chapter. Um, I did not address um, Russia. I addressed strong men. I addressed the role of these uh, macho men who um, believe they are not only masters of the universe, but they are controllers of destiny of their own people and of people who get in their way. But I did not, I didn't see the Ukraine coming for what came. I knew that Putin would protect his access to the sea at any expense. I didn't see him stepping in and trying to overtake all of the Ukraine. I didn't see a folk character like Zelensky rising and almost becoming a modern day John F. Kennedy. I, I miss those things. So that's one of the problems because you're looking for a, a fact-based picture and there's always these random acts that, that, that come out and, and happen. So one of the things that people imagine uh, trend spotters do is they, they would look for trendsetters, which many people might think of as young people. So do you, uh, is that the case? Uh, like, do, do trends originate with the young? You know what? Some trends do. And I do probably spend a disproportionate amount of my time speaking to people about um, things that a young person is most likely to embrace. So the end of the conventional work day, the end of the conventional work place, um, the end of conventional currency. But no, I don't think they are the only place where trends get rewritten. I think that we have to be very careful that for every age and stage, there is shifts in attitudes, beliefs, values, and preferences that ladder into something that, that that's really about change. Uh, so I guess we'll start there with a couple of things you just named. So the end of the traditional workday, the end of the traditional workplace. Uh, now, you've been um, kind of cloud-based and itinerant for years. So in a way, you're, you've been ahead of the curve. Uh, I will say that I'll, I'll relate my own experience. You might enjoy this. Um, so I tried to start a company in my mid-20s. Uh, we didn't have money for an office. So I was working from home and I hated it uh, because <laughs> it was like, like I tried to start a company um, from home as, you know, uh, a 20-something-year-old who didn't know anything. And I swore to myself, it's like, I will never do this again. That it, it, next time I try and start something at a minimum, I'm in the spring for an office or have a place to go. Um, so uh, I then worked at a startup, then another startup, then became the head of a company. And when I was the head of uh, my education company, uh, it, we had operations all over the country and even some overseas, um, but there was a real office culture. Uh, we would come in, we would do things like, and and I prioritized trying to make that culture positive. Uh, you know, we'd bring in free food at a certain time, I'd bring people out to uh, events, uh, periodically even company trips. Uh, uh, and I, I was someone who believed that that was an integral part of building a strong organization, uh, a strong team and, and getting things uh, done. And then when I started Venture of America with your help, um, it, it was similar where we had a really tight office group. It was a young, group of young people. Um, now fast forward to today, and it seems that's really kind of passe. If I were to make that argument today, a lot of people would find it very, very 
um, jarring. Um, and a part of me thinks, well, that's like an evolution of who I am in my life stage, because I'm now a 40 something year old with a family. So for me working remotely or having an interview with you like this is like perfectly pleasant and, uh, you know, convenient. Um, but I, I do feel like young people are going to be missing something, not heading into those traditional uh, office environments, even though if you were to poll those young people, they'd much prefer not to go into those office environments. So, you know, they might want to be a hybrid maybe or, or work from home. Um, so, but I, I'm with you that there is no going back, um, that, that this, this new environment is here to stay. Um, so, uh, so first let, let's go into why you predict an end to the traditional workday and workplace. And second, like what you think the plus and the minuses will be. Well, first of all, I think that young people are much more transactional. I, I know that I'm older than you are. And when I saw work when I graduated from Brown, you saw it on a 35-year trajectory. You actually thought about joining a company. You thought you might still be there 30-odd years later to collect a gold watch and a going-away dinner. And you were quite uh, mindful of the people who were in the company that had been there 25, 30, 35 years. And it was something you really... I'm not going to say we're aspirational for, but we weren't certainly disdainful of. When I speak to a 25-year-old about somebody who might be with an organization for 35 years, first thing that crosses their mind is, what's the matter with that person? Um, unless you're talking maybe about Brian Moynihan rising through various permutations of what became Bank of America to become the CEO of Bank of America, they'd be like, what's the matter with the dude? Like, why would he do that? Um, so I think that's one thing that is quite different. Another um, is that <clears throat> we now live in a world where we're always connected, we're always communicating with others. So we don't just need that workplace as a place to feel plugged into the world. You know, when I used to go to Shia Day back in the 90s, I needed to go there. It was my social life. It was like I went to Brown and then I went to Shy Day. And then you made, you made friends. friends. Sometimes you yeah. even uh, dated people uh, or maybe, you know, if not your colleagues, their friends. You, 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 your social life was there. You know, you, you figured out with whom you were going to have a bagel. You figured out with whom you might play tennis after work. You figured out who you were going to see a movie with. You argued about a book. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what your hobby or pursuit was it gave you this built-in almost dorm-like life for as long as you wanted. And then once people became of sort of a settling down family age, it gave them an outlet to get away from those 30-something um, duties. Because when they came to the office, they were still themselves. They were still that younger at heart person who could you know, talk nonsense. So, Work was a very different thing. It was much more holistic. It was a source of comfort and support and all of that. COVID changed everything. It stripped away what work was. Work became a transaction. You pay me X and I do Y. I communicate with you through the screen. We work out the bugs in our screen-based relationship. We get our work done. Um, in most cases, we get our work done without a lot of the unnecessary bonding and everything else. And I have a lot more time for myself, whether it's time to pursue my family, time to pursue my, uh, my passion projects. Well, well if, you, if you say family, again, for someone like me, it's, it's perfectly positive and benign. But like, I do feel, you know, a lot of 20-something year olds aren't at that stage. So yeah. Right. Well, and I think for those people, what it end up, ended up doing, though, is, is um, 
enforcing a sense of loneliness that they suddenly realized work wasn't fulfilling. Wow. So if you were a family person, you had plenty more time to be with that family that you had chosen. If you were older than that, yeah, the same was pretty much true. If you were a single person, you felt very much lost in, in place. And so it, it, may, it gave you a different set of priorities. Priorities that work, was un, work is unlikely to fulfill. So I think it's raised interest in people switching jobs. Um, give me more money. Um, so, so, so it sounds like one of the, so work relationships become more transactional and young people in some ways lower uh, the, their, uh, their standards for work in terms of offering fulfillment because they wouldn't expect it to offer fulfillment or, or uh, the uh, center of their social life, for example, like that, they just don't expect that. I think the idea of I live to work is shot. Now I think the idea is I work to live. And so I want the best possible working situation so that I can live well. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. I think the other thing is it opened up all new geographic opportunities on the spectrum for people. So you could have been working in Seattle, Washington, you weren't loving your life in Seattle. You were living in a much more densely packed housing environment. You could move to Boise. You could move to Flagstaff. Um, oh, good. So for just for a moment, let's have some fun with this. So you just uh, named a couple of places that I think are experiencing uh, an inflow of uh, professionals and uh, remote workers. Um, what are like the uh, towns or cities of the future? Like what's going to be hot? Boise is definitely hot. From what I hear, uh, what, what are the other hot towns? So we have to juxtapose this. There's two problems because another trend I really talk about in the book is climate migration. 
Yeah. So if you really want to be safe, you're probably moving to Vermont. Interesting. Um, there are probably other alternative places in the Midwest, although, but while I was getting ready to talk to you, I was just reading that there's now booming fires um, on the Kansas border. So I guess parts of the Midwest are not as climate protected, but you are absolutely contemplating Maine and Vermont. Um, the places that really picked up the most number, I think, of new inhabitants were um, Phoenix, it was Tucson, it was Austin, it was Boise, it was all of these second and third tier southwestern cities or, uh, west, or western cities, but cities where you could invent a quality of life that very much had a strong outdoors component. Because if you had to be socially distanced, you didn't have to be socially distanced from nature, where there was a strong national parks culture and where that national parks culture was essentially still available to you during most most of the period of lockdown. Yeah, um, so, I think so, so three mega trends you cite, um, one of them is climate change, uh, which uh, obviously is not good news, um, but you uh, project climate migration, uh, you project people uh, tuning into weather reports uh, in the same way they would uh, uh, virus updates uh, because there are going to be various climate events that you have to be mindful of. Uh, and I think there are certain parts of the country where that's happening already. Yeah, and I think from a long-range planning standpoint, as we put down money um, to own a home, whether it's a starter home or a permanent home, we start to worry about the resellability of that home based on Mother Nature. So you're starting to see even things like Zillow give you climate scores um, for a specific um, neighborhood, for specific housing. So just like they talk to you about flooding and walkability, sun scores are also giving you climate scores. I think we're getting more and more familiar with the idea that uh, uh, climate, I think, what are we up for temperature points in the last decade? I mean, it, it, this is a serious, serious issue. And I think there's a number of things to be worried about. Climate is going to factor into all of the decisions we start to make, and it's not going to be in this amorphous way that we've all discussed climate for the last 15 years of like, oh, let's go to Earth Day, let's make a difference, let's recycle. Um, it's going to be a much more serious, and I think that wildfires are something that we're going to become very, very um, aware of, attuned to, and very frightened of. Yeah, they're just going to increase in, in intensity. So uh, so between these trends you're citing uh, of uh, transition to more remote work and climate change, a lot of the projections are negative around cities. You have a mixed set of projections around cities uh, where cities are both going to be losing a certain type of person, but also gaining in importance, uh, particularly in, uh, in places around the world. Uh, like, what do you see as the future of cities first in the U.S. and then it's, it seems like globally it's a different story? Globally, it is a different story. I think in the U.S., cities are going to become um, communities, small communities, neighborhoods for young people. I think we're going to start to be um, much more prehistoric as it relates to what do we want? So I want a neighborhood. I want a neighborhood butcher. I want a neighborhood fruit uh, monger. I want a neighborhood vegetable monger, I, I want um, a bookstore, I want a place where I can, I can go and go out of home 
and drink coffee. I want a neighborhood park. I, I want to be very close. I, I'm with a recognition of I want some social distance. I want to be very close to my neighbors. So neighborhoods are going. You're going to judge your city much more based on your neighborhood. So I want to be in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York City. You're not going to say I want to be in New York City. You're going to want to be in specific locations where people um, do spe you know, have specific mores. I think as you start to look at um, cities outside of the largest um, urban cities, it's going to change a little bit because people are going to be looking based upon quality of the schools, on the quality of the kind of pods they can create with their neighbors. I think this whole idea of neighborhood pods, we've underestimated how much they've stuck from um, COVID. So I not only wanna have nice neighbors, but I wanna be able to be in a pod. So if I have an emergency, I have somebody I can count on because we've compromised our nuclear family that aren't in the same place, but by and large, so in exchange, we need to form these, um, what we call lifeboats, which are people that we would do what we had to do to be able to save them. But we wanna be able to be um, in a pod with them. And then I think in the rest of the world, we're looking for 20 minute cities. So cities like Seoul, Korea, where you can get everywhere you need to get to on a bicycle in 20 minutes. And I think we're gonna become very much bike oriented in cities. I think we're gonna be very much focused on um, taking kids to school on bikes, going to workplaces on bikes, going to do shopping on bikes, going to do socializing on bikes. Um, and not just the way it's done in Amsterdam where it's done sort of in us, um, everybody does it. It's gonna be everybody discovering it because it's gonna be a change. And I think that Amsterdam just got there first where the car is really, if you drove a car up to a dinner party, people would think you were a little ostentatious. I think we're going to see uh, bike, a whole bike families, whole bike families with whole bike helmet families. Well, uh, there are a lot of people that would love that image. Do you see that happening in the U.S. or, or just uh, globally? You see it happening in the U.S., but not in your very, very largest cities. I see it happening in places like Austin. I see it happening in places like Tucson. I see it happening perhaps in places like Des Moines. I don't see it happening in places like Phoenix where the city may be stretched out for 75 or 80 miles. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, so you travel a lot. Um, do you like follow people around and just like peer over their shoulder to see what they're doing on their phone? <laughs> not on their phone, but okay. All right, this is gonna make me sound really scary. And now if any of your listeners see me do this, they're gonna think, oh, let this woman be around. No, I follow them around. I look at what they put in their shopping baskets because I think people have this incredible um, disconnect. They say they eat healthy and then they put this crap in. They say they want more choice and then they go and they choose between very few number of items. Um, they say they want to be experimental with food items and they in fact shop off a very mundane list and, and it tends to be driven by coupons. Um, I, I do tend to look at what people put in their shopping baskets. I also tend to look at what people um, sign up for in a bookstore. I, I, I'm less interested in kind of where you go than in how you do it, the how you do it part. So years ago when I used to do really, really awesome and invasive consumer research, I'd go to someone's house, I would do your interview and I'd say, Andrew, can I offer you an extra hundred dollars to photograph your garbage? If you've already told me all the, all the answers to your family's secrets about X, Y, or Z, you probably thought your garbage was really benign. And I would pull out a hefty bag and I would pull out one of those sort of Kodak instant cameras and I'd photograph and, and people would have told me these incredible fantasies about all the healthy eating they did, all the recycling they did, and their garbage told the truth. So uh, I, I, I that's actually at, a pretty good motto, Marion. Your garbage <laughs> tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so the cart going into you your mean house. We are not the these idealized uh, avatars that we're presenting to the world. And I mean, that's, look, the truth about a lot of these trends are we wouldn't have a lot of the problems we had in society if people were the people they depicted themselves as. Uh, yeah, amen to that. Uh, so um, I, I have to say, I agreed with 95% of the stuff in your, your, your book. Um, uh, and a lot of it was, frankly, a little bit challenging in terms of it, like it doesn't paint a rosy uh, picture of the future. Um, the, the three mega trends you cited were uh, the rise of big tech, climate change, uh, and COVID. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that people are excited about. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, if you, COVID is mental health for me. And this idea that today we talk openly about our mental health challenges, we feel openly about our mental health challenges, that mental health is raging around us. Um, qualitatively, I can prove it to you. Quantitatively, I haven't attempted it, but it feels to me like every time I turn around, I open the paper, I open up a major news magazine and I read about a suicide of someone I thought was mentally healthy. And I think that we're having a great deal of people feeling very lost. I mean, the rules don't work anymore. So to me, COVID the virus is something, but what COVID did to us, it, it yes, knocked us off our A game. Yeah, I, I think you, there's a quote in your book, it says something around chaos is the new normal uh, and that people feel that because of COVID. Well, I noticed something. I didn't catch COVID until about 
five weeks ago. And the whole time I didn't catch COVID, I sat around waiting for it. And so you're completely upended, waiting for something terrible to happen. Then when it happens, I mean, in my case, I had already been vaccinated and boosted. It really wasn't so terrible. But what was terrible was the nerve wracking time going all the way back to World Economic Forum Davos over two years ago when I first thought I'd been exposed to COVID. The number of times when you feel like, oh my God, my life is going to be over. And I think that people feel that way. I think right now you have people feeling that way about the war in the Ukraine, about what's going to happen with NATO in Europe, about the risk of uh, a World War III in this country. I mean, I don't know if you noticed in the last couple of weeks, but there's been journalists, qualified, credible journalists, journalists that we would read, who are speculating about when the civil war in the US, when it starts, where is it going to start? Is it going to start in Michigan? Is it going to start in New York State? We're reading this stuff, and it's no wonder we can't find any calm. And so we assume chaos, and we project chaos, and we bring chaos in there. Well, uh, I, I know exactly the journalist you're talking about, uh, because this is uh, something I'm focused on, which is the, the potential for political conflict in, in the United States, which, which I think is a very real possibility, so I can see why folks are, are digging in. I, I've actually interviewed a couple of the authors you're talking about who wrote the books that then inspired those pieces. Um, uh, and, and I think it, it speaks to, to something you're identifying right now, which is that COVID has uh, isolated us from each other. Um, it's made people stressed out and ornery and negative. Uh, and then when you present uh, like a positive, wholesome, unifying message to folks, I, I think it just uh, falls on deafer ears than, than uh, ordinarily. And then if you have like a negative, rancid transactional message, uh, people are somewhat more receptive or people will just shrug and say, well, at this point, um, you know, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to stick my neck out um, in, a, in a way that might um, prevent a problem from getting worse because let me just uh, take care of the folks in my lifeboat. Um, uh, you know, like, like that, that, I think that's a very real sense. And so if, if you project forward, uh, it, it's, it's very uh, deeply, deeply concerning. Uh, I, I think it's at this point rational to be deeply concerned. I think it's actually um, bubble living to assume that we are not at the brink of the potential of a civil war in this country. I felt that way before I really started on this book, before I really understood the seriousness of COVID, because I felt that for the first time, we couldn't argue rationally with one another. We couldn't, we had lost our sportsmanlike ability to agree to disagree. And I know that in watching the hearings the last couple of weeks, both the January 6th hearings, the hearings on justice, um, on the new justice for the Supreme Court, I felt like what happened? I mean, you know, most of us still grew up with grandmothers who told us that if we didn't have something nice to say, say nothing at all. And we've lost that. And it's the worst in political culture because they're, they're just uh, posturing for cable news. They're like, hey, let me see if I can get a viral moment or social media, actually. I mean, you know, it's like, ooh, if I have a video that uh, gets a million likes, then, you know, then, then that, that's going to be a huge win for me. So, like the you know the civil thing to do would just be to ask legitimate questions about your judicial philosophy, but like that's not going to score any points. So let me get out there and 
see if I could make some headlines over, you know. <laughs> that was, I mean, I think that was my net takeaway was I agree with very, very, very little that Liz Cheney has done in her career, but I couldn't be more proud of the way she projects herself as a person with respect, but I realize she gets absolutely no credit for simply being polite and reasonable. And you it, realize it, it, there's, there's this the strain of, of people, Marion, and like this group. So Liz Cheney is a, like a perfect example, but there's like a, a group of principled, uh, polite uh, Republicans that, that are just uh, getting pilloried. It's like an endangered species. You know, I think that the number of uh, representatives that voted to impeach Trump uh, on principle uh, you know, it's like now half of them are either uh, already uh, out, uh, out, or being censured, or being. Uh, you know, it's like that, that, like that, uh, that strain of republicanism is now very much uh, an endangered species, uh, and it's tough. Well, and the same, I think the same thing's happening on the Democratic side, and I think that they all get named to the front line because then there's going to be someone who's very, very much on the left that's going to run against them. But the bigger problem is I think we've lost our capacity for consensus yeah. and for um, negotiating polite deal-making. And I think that's the thing that makes me feel very uncomfortable. I think another thing I touch on the book is inequities. And look, yeah, I don't the, know- the, the most extreme income inequality, the winner take all economy. I mean, I don't know how we explain as humans, Jeff Bezos, Mackenzie Scott. It's like you have these two polar opposite humans who are approaching the world change and betterment. And I'm not gonna minimize, does Jeff Bezos have an objective of a positive change you look at what she's out there doing and you realize that one person with a great deal of money can actually change an industry like philanthropy. Yeah, it's tremendous. And you start to realize um, even she's subject to criticism. Even someone who is giving away money without an agenda. I mean, unlike, um, let's say, a Gates Foundation or a Bloomberg um, where it comes with, and maybe it should, I'm not telling you it shouldn't, it comes with a whole set of program ideals and program management strategies and all of that. We, we, can't, we have this problem accepting goodness in others. We are so suspect. Um, There's a lot of mistrust, a lot of mistrust. Yes. There's mistrust everywhere on everything. And I think that that really, it's going to impact the the current generation of children. It's going to impact the next generation of elected officials. Um, it's going to separate this country. I mean, I saw yesterday over lunch, I went to listen to the, the newest governor of New York and you listen to her talk about her point of view on abortion and you realize that she's gonna keep the state wide open. And you realize that this is going to lead to a great deal of mistrust from states on the other side of the issue and, and, and that we've never come to a consensus. We are just each fighting to protect what we believe to be true and fair. And, and frankly, um, 
the inequities, where is the money, where is the power, where is all those things, it's really gotten lost in, in, in a lot of noise. Yeah, the, it, it, it's, I, I think you just coined a new term, Marion. This can be your, your, your new term. Transaction, tra transactional America. <laughs> I need to get rid of metrosexual, so I'm desperate for ones. So that's okay. Transactional. But, no, but, but, but I think that that's true. I, but I, I think that's what's arriving at our doorstep. Uh, you know, you you make broad appeals, and then people will be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah," but like you know, like what's in it? What's in it for me, really? <laughs> like, like, let, 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 let's talk turkey. You could like make appeals to values all day long, but uh, you know, it's like I. Uh, like uh, I, I want uh, cash in hand. I want something that that's going to uh, be something I can take home to my lifeboat and to the people in my lifeboat, right? And 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 the, this whole idea that we haven't gotten comfortable with about multicultural, a multicultural lifeboat, a multicultural country. I, I, I find it incredulous that people weren't expecting this. We've known it for twenty years. I mean, I recall in 1998 in, in, in the book Next, we wrote about it and I did get my wrist slapped because I sort of said by, you know, the end of, of this century, I'm sorry, of this decade, um, the country wouldn't be white, the country wouldn't be English speaking and the country um, would be very much a blended and blurred society. And that's exactly where we've ended up. And it's wonderful. And instead of embracing it for all of its richness and robustness, we've decided to go back into our corners and fight about it. And well, this, this is actually a, a very consistent theme of the people who are concerned about political violence is that apparently the pattern in other societies is if you have a group uh, that's concerned about a loss of status, then they tend to uh, respond very, very poorly, sometimes aggressively and even violently. Um, uh, and so I think people like you who've looked at the the uh, changing composition of America and think, okay, like we're we're going to head towards like a, a benign uh, mixed uh, group and perception uh, of what America is. Um, like there's actually this this reaction, and it, it's something that you know I drew criticism um, for for when I was running for president is that I tended to. Um, make an economic case. I was like, look, we're, we're, we're gutting these manufacturing jobs. We're gutting all these jobs. Like, you know, like that, that's the problem. And it is interrelated. Like we, we are uh, hollowing out the middle class um, and, and that there are a lot of uh, uh, white people in that middle class and then look up and are like, why is this happening? And then, uh, you know, they get presented terrible leadership with terrible arguments to go. Like, oh, it's someone else's fault. It's like, and um, you know, like my, my argument is like, look, it's not these other people's fault. It's if, it, if it's anyone's fault, it's the robot's fault or it's the, the economic system's fault. But, yeah, but, but, that, but that's, but that's not going to be a popular political case. Like the, the pattern in other societies is uh, blame another group. Uh, and then that, that will hasten a rise to power. Well, I mean, if you think about it from a standpoint of I, I go to 2038 because there's a Y2K 2038 linkage where we're gonna have a software glitch, a clock glitch in 2038 that will be a little bit like Y2K. We'll probably get it solved because we'll put the horsepower behind that we need to solve it. But you know, you have a 2024 problem, which what is that election going to bring us? Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm so focused on this period. I think about it all the time. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, it's funny because going to this Eleanor's Legacy Luncheon yesterday, I sat back and looked and I realized New York has nothing in common with America. 
I mean, in New York, you already have a primarily female black city council, I believe. It's, I think, majority um, female. I think it was majority female, exactly. You have a black American woman, AG. You have a female governor. You have a number of things, and it's so far, people are not resisting all those issues of intersectionality that would normally keep people very busy in other places. Um, but we, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what is this going to mean? Because the intersectionality is something that people really fight against. I mean, you know, 40 years ago, or even, even 20 years ago, if you think about the book, I really started it as of 2000. In the year 2000, it wasn't even cool to be a woman. We thought it was. We thought we had options open to us, but we still, there was still some real question about whether our voices could be heard. I would argue that that is mostly a thing of the past, but you see the exact same thing happening to your black female counterpart. You certainly see it happening to your Asian female counterpart. I'm not sure an Asian man or a black man has gotten his full rights extended to him yet. We have such a long way to go, and it seems to happen at snail's pace in this country. So this intersection, so this the the problems of prejudice, the problems. We're going to have to redefine a script for a way to live a modern life in a on a planet that is much more challenged than it was 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, let alone 60 years ago. And it's not going to be easy. Yeah, that 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 is definitely the picture you paint in the book. Um, one thing I enjoyed about your projection of the future is that small is the new big, and that like ha and having a little slice of nature is going to be uh, something that we seek uh, and and value highly. And I have to say that was a fairly benign <laughs> picture. It's like, oh, you know, like I, I kind of like the idea of having people having their uh, little hidey holes and uh, you know being able to go for nature walks. I think green grass and clean air are going to become a priority for people. It's really the anecdote to all these other climate issues. It's also an anecdote to the pace and of the chaos in modern cities. And I think that we need to be very, very conscious of the fact that people need a place to escape to and that nature does good things for people, especially given that people are need a chance to reset. I mean, they need a chance to reboot themselves every now and then. Otherwise, right now, it's like going down the interstate at 80 miles an hour, having a flat tire and changing the flat tire while you keep driving. Yeah, uh, and, and doing it and, and doing it via Zoom. <laughs> um, so, so you talk about the two great powers, the U.S. and China. You suggest that neither of them is necessarily going to lead to the world that you you want. That that there's not uh, necessarily going to be an American-led world order that we're excited about, or uh, China-led world order, uh, certainly that people would be positive about. Uh, and then um, you cite the rise of big tech and surveillance. I think this is going to be a, a, a bigger and bigger deal, particularly now when folks are concerned about uh, crime and uh, public safety. And then one of the potential tools is um, surveillance and AI uh, face uh, recognition. And then in the States, people are like, no, 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 we can't use that stuff. Um, and then you were like, well, in China, they use that stuff up the wazoo and everyone shrugs. Um, and and the, that, that's obviously two very, very different approaches. But I, I feel like 
uh, it's going to become a hotter and hotter issue here in the States. Yeah, and I think for years, a certain percentage of our population traded off and thrived under an aura of anonymity. They were just an everyday, every way person who went around about living their life, and they didn't ask a lot of questions. They didn't make a lot of demands on government or on their neighbors. They kind of, and they just stayed off the map. And I think now the map gets everybody, and the map gets you when you make a little mistake or a big mistake. So I think that this lack of privacy, you know, it's funny because it, it goes back. 20 years or so that people began to worry about privacy. But at this point- Well, well, well what's funny, Marion, is I think people are, are uh, divulging data or having it, frankly, just uh, hoovered up into the cloud from the mega tech companies all the time. Um, and we're cool with Amazon and Google knowing everything about us. Um, but then if, if it's a public actor, then you're like, oh no, like, you know, like I don't trust the government to do anything with this stuff because there's this big brother Orwellian aspect. It is funny. I think we trust companies more than we trust our government by a significant degree. There is actually there is actual quantitative data that supports that statement. I mean, I've been looking at that recently and it sort of scares me. Like, why do you assume, especially with Facebook, that your data is safer with Facebook than with the IRS? Well, Facebook's use of our data is uh, part of one of the trends you cite around mental health, I feel like it, it's making us sick, uh, you know, so but uh, it seems like we're more accepting of a private company making us and our kids sick than we are of, uh, uh, you know, the government having the, you know, like the, that same access. Yeah, no, look, I mean, one of the things I didn't really dig into the book, and I, I, I probably will dig in in a follow up article is the instant meltdowns. But if you think about this, I mean, Instagram can literally cause a teenage girl to melt down in a way that you, it wasn't really possible to be demoralized by several thousand people when I was growing up. If you really, really got- <laughs> That's actually a very profound observation, Marion. It wasn't possible to be demoralized simultaneously by several thousand people when either of us were growing up. I could not agree more. I mean, it, 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 it's, if it, there is a certain truth that you, your naysayers and your accolades were all a manageable number of people that you could <laughs> kind of work your way through. You know, I graduated it's like a manageable school. number of people, like you could count them on one hand. It's like two people are like, go marry it. And then two people are like, you stink. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, when these things happen, and now you're starting to see the law step in. So when, if a very unpleasant example is if one horrendous teenager in an outburst to another says, I want you dead. And the kid goes off and kills himself. Um, there is liability and accountability. And so it's the mental health thing. It's the size of the megaphone that the social universe has provided us. It's the degree to which you can harness the power of the metaverse or any of those systems. It's the um, geometric way that this news can spread. And it's also, um, I, I think this, the danger, you know, when everything is already feels dangerous, there is almost an energetic pull to something more dangerous. 
Wow, that's, so, that's very deep. And so as you get closer and closer to it, um, I think you feel good about it. I, I mean, these are all terrible, terrible observations that I wish I didn't think were true. But it's just so thoroughly different than growing up in the 80s or the 90s or even the 00s where... Oh, I, I mean, I'm an 80s, 90s kid myself. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you would just... The world had you on a much tighter leash and magnitudes of scale were tiny. Um, the other thing was you didn't have you didn't have the pounding of breaking news at all points. Oh, I yeah. mean, I, you know, someone said to me, Marion, you'll appreciate this, but but she said that um, that it's up to Gen X to fix uh, big tech because we remember the times before and after. Uh, you know, like I, I remember the times before and I'm so glad, frankly, it didn't exist when <laughs> I was growing up. And, and, you know, then, and what's funny too, I'll just speak for myself on this. Like I was running an education company that I was directed, uh, directing services towards young people. And so, you know, like, I was like, okay, Facebook, gotta get on that. Like uh, Twitter, Twitter. So Twitter, I got on because I ran for president. Uh, LinkedIn I had, but like, it, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, you were probably the same way. Did you feel pressure to use these things because you're like, oh, I work with young people all the time. Like I have to see what they're doing. So I had the exclusive rights to do online market research on AOL going back to around 1993. So I felt obliged to be on there because it was the way I could figure out what young people were saying and especially young adults were saying. For me, it was a little bit less teens a little bit more 20 somethings like you would do your annual surveys for let's say the esquire sex survey the glamour sex survey your celebrity surveys people would tell you things they wouldn't tell you looking you in the eye if you were talking to them via tech but even then i knew there was a stranger danger to it um and but it was much less than it is today Back then I used to argue about one in 35 people didn't have the right intentions. And we knew things like, so we would mail, because we were paying people to be part of research, we knew their social security numbers, we knew their addresses to mail them checks. And we still knew that about one in 35 were a problem. I think in today's world, um, first of all, you might have 35 identities. Maybe only one of your identities is the problem, but that problem, but that identity is a big problem. I mean, people didn't do things like that in the beginning with social media, they had a, an identity. It was probably your name or some- <laughs> It was probably your there name. <laughs> the world has changed so completely, so dramatically. Oh, look, I've become, and this is not an addiction, I'm very proud of. I've become addicted to this 90 day fiance show, which is like these people that meet people they fall in love with through mostly through online services. And they try to bring them to the U S under K one visas. And you're watching this and you're like, where did you find each other? And you realize that there are people that spend hours, days, weeks, months online out of sheer loneliness. And I don't think we understand how lonely people are. I mean, and that is a point within the mental health thing. It's a point within the lifeboat thing. It's a point in the, in the thing about things getting smaller. When communities get smaller, you need to have more intimate ties. If you don't have more intimate ties, you are more lonely.
so so the, the, the loneliness you, you speak of, so there are some trends uh, that are very clear now in the data that I think are going to become more extreme um, around young people having less sex uh, and, um, and then getting married less. Uh, and uh, I, I think that both of them are going to continue. It reminds me a little bit of what happened in Japan decades ago, where they also, uh, you know, stopped marrying and having sex. Um, you could see a number of reasons for it, but I, I can see that happening pretty clearly, especially in a time when, you know, we're doing all this stuff remotely and people, I know young people who uh, are just logging in and logging out and chilling. And I'm just like, you know, shouldn't you be out there uh, trying to date someone? <laughs> um, so, but but I do think it's the new normal where they just like shrug and be like, yeah. And then, you know, like, uh, like, I, like I'm, I, and I, for whatever reason, I think a lot of people have not necessarily um, uh, believe that that's in the cards for them, um, whether it's because of uh, their um, financial prospects, uh, or, you know, like, uh, even their native desires. One of, one of the things that I, I see is that people dislike friction. Um, and relationships are filled with friction. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm married. <laughs> so I, you know, uh, one of my jokes would like someone, I, you know, directs me in like an environment. Um, and then they're like, Oh, sorry. And I'm like, I can take direction. I'm married. <laughs> you know? like, like, of course. Um, and I feel like a lot of young people too, um, to today, it's like that, you know, they just kind of live the way they want to live. And that if, if someone, um, like manages to be a part of that, then that's fine. But like, it, it's almost never the case that someone's just going to completely be a part of the way you're living without some adjustment. No, I think you're right. I mean, in the book, I do deal quite a bit with what happens um, it, with the aloneness, the aloneness concept in Japan. I mean, the whole idea that today it's perfectly acceptable to go to a Japanese restaurant alone. 20 years ago, you would have been treated like an absolute pariah. I don't even think you would have been served. Um, the idea that Japanese elders are living completely alone 20 years ago, extended family would have found some place to store you, whether you were a parent, an aunt, or an uncle, they would have just moved you in and, and made you part of that sort of high-rise lifeboat. And I, I think that things have just changed so much and we haven't caught up to, I, I do think you're absolutely right. Also that young people um, are much more gender ambiguous. And so they're not even sure exactly what they want. And in playing that out, it both widens but narrows choices. And I think that it also leaves them very, very frustrated. They're not going to find the exact yang to the yin that they're looking for. And I, I, I pun, in, pun intended or no? <laughs> no pun intended. As I said that, I was like, oh, no, no, no. But I, I mean, I, I really do think that it's like, it's, it's a much tougher world. Um, and there may not be the same motivation because I think there's a lot less interest maybe in having children. Yes, and well, that's in the numbers too, obviously. If you're, and you know, certainly in having a large, I mean, I mean, I remember the very beginning of COVID having a pretty strong argument with a sociologist that I was interviewing for the book who said to me, oh, this is going to be the great baby boom. And I'm like, only for the exceedingly wealthy. Everyone else is going to be absolutely scared to death. 
And we've seen that that's absolutely what happened for a tiny, tiny group of extremely wealthy people. There was a small boom. And for everybody else, it was like, I don't even know if I want the responsibility of bringing children into this world. Well, um, dating and then getting married and then having children are all very much acts of uh, sustained optimism. You know what I mean? And so like if, if you uh, introduce a lot of uncertainty, I think all those things go down personally. Yeah, I think like I tried to make the book as hopeful as possible in a world where there, there certainly is hope. But I think you have to start by hoping inside you and then hoping um, with a small cluster of people with whom you share attitudes and beliefs. And then I think you have to hope very fervently for your community and then for the broader American community. And now I think sadly for the world, interestingly enough, in our apartment in Switzerland, I have, um, which just shows, I have a Ukrainian family, a Ukrainian refugee family living with us. Wow. And I wanted, to, I wanted to just do it straight away when the opportunity came up. I, I went to a, a Harvard student website and I just signed up. And actually, it's the most hopeful thing I've done probably in a decade, because here are these people who somehow managed to get from the Ukraine to Lausanne, Switzerland, and they managed to do it not by talking about it, but by literally packing their immediate family and their cat into a car and traveling, you know, the 18 hours or something. And, and you start to realize there are some people that just live with hope eternal and they were gonna make a life for their family no matter what it took. And I've gotten to know quite a bit, quite a number of Ukrainian refugees through this site because we're bombarded still daily with, do you have any more rooms? And it's really interesting because that's the most hopeful place I've seen on the planet. And so there's something to be said for the way that Zelensky talks to his followers, that he gives them something to believe in. Even though if you sat back rationally and tried to put mathematical odds to what he's saying and doing, you'd be like, this is hopeless. Well, he's increasing the odds single-handedly. Uh, and it, it does uplift one when you think about, uh, you know, uh, the, the fact that so many people like you are trying to help uh, Ukrainians and the Ukrainians themselves showing so much uh, fortitude and courage. Uh, yeah, but we can but all only help one-to-one. -one. I think for me, that was the lesson on like, I was tired of listening to all my posh friends talk about helping by sending checks for five grand. I was like, you know what? I just saw on TV, these three Harvard students had set up this website to match Ukrainians that needed a place to stay. I'm like, we have a three bedroom apartment in Switzerland. We don't use it that frequently. I'm there right now. I'm here to welcome the people. I'm gonna put myself on the website. And, I, and people were like, you're completely crazy. All I asked for was proof that they had a passport from anywhere in the world. You're not crazy at all. Like, like I, I think that's the greatest like, thing I've ever heard. I was like, <laughs> my, my comment was like, what are they going to do? Steal my Converse sneakers? Like I should worry. Like these people have been driven out of Switzerland. There's nothing in the world I have that they're not welcome to. I give them what, anything they can find that they want in the apartment. Take it. It's not stealing. I've just given it to you. But it was interesting to watch because I think that we, we're going to need to relearn generosity. 
And it goes back to the, you know, it goes back, I suppose it's a biblical statement. I always associate with John F. Kennedy, but I think I'm wrong, that for whom a great deal has been given, a great deal is expected. I don't know that that has resonated right now. It's like if you've been given no, a great Unfortunately, deal. even people that have right now are feel uh, beleaguered and under siege. Uh, and, and in that environment, uh, people are less likely to be generous. I have seen counterexamples of that. You're one. Uh, there was a gentleman I know who brought in a family from uh, Afghanistan, um, you know, like the, dur during the uh, Taliban takeover. Just like, you know, there, there were folks who'd worked with the American government and he has them in his house right now um, in, in the States. Um, but uh, there, there are a lot of people who right now are hunkering down in a time when we kind of need people to open up. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's like, it's funny. I didn't even tell my husband what I was doing. He was in the U.S. I was in Switzerland. I was like, I called him. I'm like, by the way, did you know that we have four Afghan, we have four Ukrainians moving? He goes, and it, it was perfect. It was obviously, you can tell he's used to me. He's like, what do they eat? <laughs> yeah, that's kind. Well, I actually did think to myself, what are they going to eat on like an ongoing basis? And, you know, it's like, no, no, no. no. And it was so funny. I said, don't worry. I said, don't worry. I ordered a lot of grain and a lot of vegetables and they appear to make a lot of soups. And it was just so funny because he knew better than to argue with me on this. Not that he would have, but even if it ever crossed his mind, he knew to choose a. I just transitioned to something practical. It's like, top line of like, that's good work. That's good partnership, have you, Marriott. Have you got? Have you gotten them food? I'm like, don't worry, I've taken care of grains and vegetables. But it, it was, you know, look, I just think that we, this book is coming out. It's coming out at a time. When never in my record, I, look, I can remember the late 70s when you had Odd and Even Gas and you had Jimmy Carter, I guess, as president. And the world seemed terrible, but I was so young, I can't really remember the responsibility that came with it. I can't remember another time when I think the world felt so vulnerable. I certainly don't remember a time when we did this much talking about nuclear warfare. I don't remember any time where polarization as was bad, as yeah. profound as it is today and where we couldn't even be polite to one another and agree to disagree and be sportsmanlike. And if these things don't change, I don't know that we have a happy ending. I think there's an enormous pressure on the 24 and the 28 elections. Um, I, I think that's probably the great pressure in the U.S. I think... We saw what happened in France over the weekend. We know what the runoff is going to be. Um, my well, guess is Macron will out. pull it off. Yeah. But that tells you something because I mean, I remember years ago when it was her father, Le Pen, running, it wasn't this kind of variable. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the 24 race in particular. I'm going to be doing everything I can to be helpful um, uh, and hopefully help see us through a really tough time. Uh, now it, it's going to be a massive challenge. I, I do think that some things are going to be on the table that are uh, relatively new or haven't been seen in American politics for quite some time. Um, we shall see, but I, I, I do feel like if we just let nature take its course, it might not take its course in a way people are excited about. Uh, and I've discovered a group of people who are very like-minded who are like, yeah, yeah, like we, we kind of need to do something <laughs> that, that, that like that this is not like a business as usual situation. Yeah, no, no, no. And it, it can't be business as usual because the world isn't business as usual, given the degree to which the, the planet Earth is deteriorating, given the degree to which 
inequities are mounting, there's just certain things that can't be allowed to, to happen unsupervised. Yeah. And I think that if I had a point of the book, I started off and I said it wasn't going to be a political book. I really had to go back in and do a complete rewrite so it didn't become a political book. Yeah, it's not a political book. It became a book about, I mean, it's, that took an awful lot of work because it's too easy to blame everything wrong on a single administration or on a dosage of administrations. And that's not what has, has happened. What's happened is from, 20, from the year 2000 to the year 2020, the world changed entirely. We didn't catch up to it. The virus caught us off guard. The virus put into spotlight all those things we're living with. And now we have got to have a plan going forward that people can live with, they can respect, and most importantly, they can respect themselves so that they respect others. Because I think the loss of self-respect is not an insignificant problem either. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lack of uh, self-esteem and comp like genuine self-esteem, not this kind of false uh, bravado, uh, but like a, a deep sense of belief. Uh, well, uh, you're a woman after my own heart, and you see the future more clearly than just about anyone. Uh, congratulations on this book, the new mega trend seen clearly in the age of disruption. Uh, do you have any conclusory notes for us to, to give people uh, a sense of, of hope and uh, optimism and what what's going to be a challenging time? I mean, your, your book lays that out. I certainly yeah. think that's the case, but there, there are still uh, still strains of, uh, of uh, things to be excited about. Yeah, I mean, to me, the most important thing is every day to do one positive act for a better future. I mean, if you live Amen. your life I love it. every day, you just sort of do something. I don't care whether it's read a book and then donate a book to a neighborhood library. I don't care whether it's um, walk to the grocery store instead of drive. I don't care if it's eating all vegetable dinner instead of, um, to me, it, what you do is less important that you put into your head. I am going to admit, do one act every day to a more positive future. Well, if, if everyone listening to this does that, then uh, we'll be on our way. And from my experience, doing that one positive thing actually does make you feel a lot better. It's, it's one reason why I try and act positively because uh, it, it helps my, my state of mind. Uh, Marion, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, you're, you're, a, you. a, you're a dear friend. You make us all a bit wiser and, and we're keyed into what's coming. Uh, appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye.